Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. Today, I have the great pleasure of having a friend and University of St. Andrews colleague, Oliver B. Langworthy, with me today on the show. Welcome, Oliver. Thank you, Joy. Uh, It's important that you know the B, because if you want to find his work, um, uh, Google Oliver B. Langworthy. That's Uh, right. Despite everything, I'm not the only Oliver Langworthy. I know, which is really remarkable, because that seems like a very unique name. That's what I thought. Uh, but you are neither a 300-year-dead... Do you know what he was? American. American. Or beyond that, I have no idea. Like, so he's just an American, just famous for being American. Yeah. Um, or 15-year-old UK citizen? Correct. Great. Well, anyway, I'm very happy to have Oliver B. Langworth with me today on the show. And we are going to be talking about Macrina, Gorgia, and who's our final person? Oh, there's many more than that. Oh, good. Uh, We have two families uh, alike in honor who we want to discuss here. Uh, Mm. Both of them mothers, sisters, Mm. and potentially wives Mm. of the Cappadocian fathers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we'll be covering Theosebia, Amelia, Macrina the Younger, Mm. Macrina the Elder, Mm. Gorgonia, and Nona. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. So many of you, if you've listened for a while, you will know that I have featured Macrina the Younger twice, um, both on the main podcast and then on the... Patreon secret podcast because she's been kind of a um, an inspirational figure for me. That feels almost shallow to put it that way. But discovering her was really, um, really impactful for me. I, I discovered her as I was researching kind of accounts of the emotions, and I read Gregory of Nyssa. Mm-hmm. And you have the resurre- is it the resurrection of the, bo- the soul, the body? I'm trying to remember what the name of it is. Um, where he describes her as this. Uh, basically as though she is Socrates in, mm-hmm. in, in, the, um, in that final scene where Socrates is dying and he is, he is the one that's being taught. And this was just remarkable to me to see this woman in this early time depicted kind of as this, this teacher, this person who influences life. And being someone who wants to be a teacher and who cares about the emotions and all these various things, uh, that was really impactful. And that led me to learning more about Macrina. And then I was so delighted to discover that you know Uh, a great deal about this. So that is a brief introduction to what we will chat about today. Uh, But that leads us into, Oliver, tell us who you are, what you specialize in, and what you do. So I'm an associate lecturer in patristics at the University of St. Andrews Mm -hmm. and an academic editor on the St. Andrews Encyclopedia of Theology. I have a doctorate in historical theology uh, and I publish in the broad area of what we might call Greek historical theology. Uh, I focus mostly on the period from about the 4th to the 7th centuries, uh, covering, I think, some of the most interesting developments in the history of the Church, uh, Mm. since this is a time long before the Reformation Mm. and long after the last of the Apostles have passed away. Mm. Uh, So this is a time of great invention, uh, great curiosity, uh, and great development. Mm. And it's something that I've really enjoyed learning more about and want to kind of provide resources for in this podcast, because I think that for many people, when they think... Um, post-apostles, pre-everything we know with the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, there's kind of a blank. Um, And so I think it's really important to know that this was, as you said, it was a time in which uh, many foundations were laid Mm -hmm. and we should know more about. Also, for a, and this this may bring up some um, other conversations which we can have in a moment, but patristics is, uh, that literally means the study of the fathers, right? That's right. Uh, which uh, we mean the church fathers, which we can talk more about in a minute. I'm curious, Oliver, how did you end up, uh, what drew you to this line of study? Well, like many people, uh, I have a degree in theology, uh, and I spend a great deal of time studying the Bible, Mm -hmm. and a great deal of time studying the Reformation and modern theology. Mm -hmm. And like so many others, uh, it seemed to me that we had Christ and the Apostles, Mm -hmm. and then we had a few councils, And then there was a long stretch where nothing happened, Mm -hmm. uh, and then Luther showed up. (laughs) That seemed wrong, uh, and I had the great pleasure of meeting a few really talented people, uh, Mm -hmm. such as Professor Mark Elliott, formerly of St. Andrews, now at Glasgow, and uh, Professor Ifer Davidson. 
all of whom really opened my eyes to the possibilities of this period and introduced me to the resources and texts I would need to find out more about it. Mm. So I was quite lucky in that regard. You know, I've found that so often when it comes to what you end up studying, there was some key person that kind of opened up um, and then encouraged you to be able to to, to search into that further. Um, so were you here for your undergrad? I was. I did both my undergraduate degree and my doctoral degree at the University of St. Andrews. And where was the master's? So I, interestingly, took a break uh-huh. to teach at a seminary mm-hmm. in uh, the Anglican Church of Tanzania in the city of Dodoma called Msalado Theological College. Wow. Uh, which was a wonderful experience. Wow. So I took a year out there, uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. uh, and then actually did come back to St. Andrews for my master's as well. Okay. Unfortunately, I applied for what was then the uh, Historical and Systematic Theology mm-hmm. degree, uh, which didn't run because I was the only person who applied for it. Oh, no. So that's long since changed. One can do a degree in Historical and Systematic Theology at the University of St. Andrews now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, what happened was about 14 people mm-hmm. Uh, including myself, from many different degrees, were all grouped together to make a sort of one-off program called Scripture and Theology. I think it only ran that one year. Wow. And it was something more like a really quick introduction to a doctorate than a master's degree. (laughs) So uh, this is when I first discovered the Church Fathers, uh, and that then guided me into my doctoral program. Wow. And it's so interesting that your two, it seems like your two contexts for theology have been this sparkling, beautiful uh, Scottish town um, in which, and then Tanzania. I would contend that Dodoma itself is a beautiful place. Uh, oh, well, very I, much in its own way. I didn't imply that it wasn't beautiful, but just very different. Oh, very different. And I don't have words to describe Tanzania. Uh, How, what words would you use to describe Tanzania? One could perhaps describe Scotland as verdant, uh-huh. and Dodoma, at least, could be described as arid. Ah. It's a bone-dry place. Mm. Uh, the coast of Tanzania, of course, is very lush and very tropical. It's a popular tourist destination. On the other hand, uh, the center of the country is very dry, very mm. arid, uh, and is quite a quite an interesting place. There are a lot of wonderful people there. And, and really, that's where I realized that the Church Fathers are a common heritage. Mm. They don't belong as the Reformation perhaps does, very much to a sort of European context. Mm. Uh, The Church Fathers came from all over the widely dispersed Roman Empire. Mm. Uh, We find them in Africa, we find them in in Asia Minor, we find them in Europe, we find them in what at the time was the far west of the empire in Spain. Really, uh, from a diverse range of contexts, and they represent a much more diverse range of voices. Uh, I think we see a a narrowing of that as we go later in history. Yeah, and that's such an interesting way to kind of see how that shaped your vision, also of kind of the more global church Mm -hmm. um, in some ways. All right, so shall we dive into the Cappadocian mothers, as it were? Although perhaps we should say a note about that. So that's interesting you mentioned that. I have a real problem uh, with the term Cappadocian mothers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now this isn't to do down anyone who likes the term. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it is is very useful. Uh, It creates a contrast Mm -hmm. with the Cappadocian fathers. Mm -hmm. Uh, This term, of course, derives from the general use of church fathers. Mm -hmm. Because we speak of church fathers when we speak of a relatively broad group of people who are said to have contributed to the foundations of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this used to be a much smaller group and it's grown over time as we've discovered more texts and more figures have entered into what we might call the academic mainstream. Mm-hmm. So the mo- church mothers mm-hmm. exist as a sort of contrast to identify a, f- a group of women who act in a similar way, who are mm-hmm. really foundational to our thinking. Mm-hmm. I don't like the term fathers or mothers here. (laughs) I think they're both rather unhelpful. (laughs) There's a little bit of narrowing that happens here as well. Because we're not just talking about people who contributed to the foundations of the church. (laughs) Really, in many cases, very few of these people can be said to have contributed anything that was durable or (laughs) lasted. There are very few who did, (laughs) but it's not all of them. (laughs) But that doesn't make their contributions any less worthy of study. (laughs) So while we might want to hold on to the term patristics as a sort of general catch-all, I think that if we're going to sort of stick with these concepts, we might as well group the women under the church fathers as well. <laughs> if, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're talking, if we're using this term to describe people who are foundational mm-hmm. to our understanding of ourselves as Christians and to the history of the church, let's just use it. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. And I think uh, on a relational sense, it makes sense in our minds to have the church mothers and fathers if we think them kind of as, you know, coming before us. But also something else you talked about was 
that each one of these women, I think this is really what I discovered with Macrina, um, she really shouldn't rightly be known simply as the sister to Gregory and Basil. That's right. That's an excellent point, actually, Joy. What we find is, so to bound this a little bit, yeah. when we speak about the Cappadocians, yes. we're speaking about a very small group of people at a very small period of time <laughs> in a very big place, actually. Mm -hmm. Cappadocia is a region of what was then Asia Minor, mm -hmm. uh, which we can think of as northern Turkey today. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Cappadocian fathers, we mean Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea, and Gregory of Nazianzus. Mm -hmm. The Cappadocians, however, is perhaps a rather more expansive term, because mm -hmm. as you say, this includes Macrina, who is far more than merely the sister of Basil mm -hmm. and Gregory of Nyssa. Mm -hmm. Macrina, of course, was uh, an ascetic and a teacher in her own right. She mm -hmm. formed and ran a community of female mystics, effectively, mm -hmm. uh, in Cappadocia. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are actually a lot more people than this mm -hmm. in this group. Uh, we're speaking of two families. Gregory of Nyssa and Basil of Caesarea were brothers, mm -hmm. and Gregory of Nazianzus is sort of off on his own. His mm -hmm. friends, he went to what we might think of as university with mm -hmm. Basil in Athens before returning mm -hmm. to Cappadocia. But when we think of these two families, we have to remember, of course, that Basil and Gregory of Nyssa had sisters, a father, and a mother. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a big family, actually. Yeah, as I say, in Macrina, there's, there's like 10 siblings, right? Yes. We, we only know a few of their names, That's right. but they're a huge family. And it might actually be worth starting at the top with Macrina mm -hmm. the Elder. Mm -hmm. Now, Macrina the Elder is actually the grandmother mm -hmm. of Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea, and Macrina herself. Mm -hmm. She's a really interesting figure in a lot of ways because she actually does get mentioned in the texts. She's hardly forgotten by history. Hmm. She's really the one who is seen as having sort of started this little, uh, you know, theological dynasty that they had yeah. going. And it was very much a formative figure in the religious lives of Basil, Gregory, and Macrina. And am I remembering correctly that Macrina the Elder was supposedly tutored by... Gregory Thaumaturgus. Yes. Great memory. Gregory Thaumaturgus is a fascinating, if somewhat marginal, figure. Hmm. Uh, he's very well known in only this sort of context. He's hmm. considered to have been the one who converted Cappadocia to Christianity. Wow. That's a bit of an overstatement, but, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, we're, you know, the entirety of Cappadocia perhaps had not been converted. Perhaps you could say converted. also that he catechized them, right? Because I think that's, that's a really good way of thinking about yeah. it. Uh, he actually studied directly under Origen, who okay. some of your listeners may know. Uh -huh. uh, Origen is... Interestingly enough, perhaps we can think of him as one of the church fathers, despite the fact that he was later accused of heresy. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's a very foundational yeah. figure in the history of the church. And Gregory Thaumaturgus actually wrote a panegyric or funeral oration huh. for Origen huh. and described him as the one who introduced him into the idea of Christian philosophy. Wow. So there's a very direct line there. Okay. And um, another way to say why do we care about this particular group in this very small place is that... and. I'm going to trust this to you. I might say this and you can correct me, oh. but um, the Cappadocian fathers are particularly known for helping in the Second Council of Nicaea form... The First Council of Constantinople. First, okay. Well, see, there you go. Well, uh, form the... Is it the phrasing about the Holy Spirit? This is a really interesting topic in its own right, actually. Okay. Uh, and it's an understandable mistake. So we have the First Council of Nicaea uh -huh. in 325. Uh-huh which took place in Nicaea, which is actually not far from Constantinople. Yeah. And then in 381, we have another council, the Second Ecumenical Council, okay. and the First Council of Constantinople. Okay. So this was attended by Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus. Mm -hmm. Gregory of Nazianzus was very briefly president of the council uh, before being kicked out. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, oh yes, um, he was deposed for among other reasons, supposedly having illegally transferred sees, but at this point we're getting into a little bit of... Politics. Uh, <laughs> deep church politics that is really... was quite dull and uninteresting at the yeah. time. Gregory of Nyssa was also there, mm -hmm. and he actually, interestingly enough, seems to have given the funeral oration for okay. the previous, so the last president who Gregory of Nazianzus replaced at the council, uh -huh. uh, Miletius. So there's, there's quite a little knot there. Uh, how much influence they had at the council mm -hmm. of 381, I think, is questionable. Okay. But the real reason we care deeply about the Cappadocians is because mm -hmm. their thought really is again, foundational. Mm -hmm. It's something that structured a lot of the way we even think today, especially about the Trinity. Mm. And that's true for the East and for the West. Yeah. So Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil of Caesarea especially are thought to have contributed a lot to how we think about the divinity and personhood of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. and indeed personhood for the entire Trinity. Okay. 
Basil also, this is a somewhat more marginal point perhaps, uh, was really foundational for Basilian uh, monasticism, mm -hmm. um, which is the foundations of Eastern monastic practice, mm -hmm. uh, following on from the Desert Fathers. And that's as um, foundational to the East as perhaps like the rule of Benedict would be Absolutely to the right. West. And Absolutely actually right. the rule of Benedict is largely drawing on the Basilian. They, they drew on very similar sources, actually. Mm -hmm. um, both of them owe a lot to the heritage from the Desert Fathers, and yeah. th there's a lot of communication there. Uh, yeah. So yes, no, there's a, there's, a, there's a deep relationship between these two forms of monasticism, but we can definitely see sort of Basilian monasticism as yeah. it goes east, and uh, Benedictine monasticism as it heads into the west. So all this to say, the Cappadocians are important because they form uh, a lot of how we think about theology in general, the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit as a person, not That's as right. a, a vague force or that kind of thing. And then secondly, because they shape, uh, particularly Basil, monasticism in the ways that we can still encounter it now. Absolutely um, right. Yeah. And so so that's why this group of people is important. And this can perhaps lead us into talking more about the women of yes. this circle. So, um, and I'm going to say my very brief thing about when I discovered Macrina, this is going to sound very full of myself, but reading the accounts of their family and how various people were educated and they were all kind of there. And then like, I love when Macrina, uh, Basil comes back from, you know, college as it mm -hmm. were. Um, and he's exceedingly puffed up, um, is, is how it's phrased in her, in the biography of her that, uh, Gregory of Nyssa writes. And she like kind of takes him down a peg and is like, but actually you need to serve the church. And, um, it's, you know, this very, important moment because it is kind of the turning point for Basil. But it's also, I, I realized as I read it, I thought these were families mm -hmm. uh, that remind me in some ways of, I could I could picture that in my own family, which is full of opinionated people who are all doing intellectual things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's, it's interesting to look back into this in that way and see these people we can relate to and understand um, in family context like we are, although uh, remarkable and very holy and learned family context. So tell us, just give us some background on some of the various Cappadocian women, shall we call them that? I think so. There we go. The way to begin, I think, is with the crying of the elder. Okay. So I'll give a little bit of a genealogy. Okay. Uh, no one loves, everyone loves a genealogy. I mean, I know I do. <laughs> right. So we'll start with Macrina the elder. Mm -hmm. Macrina the elder has a daughter mm -hmm. called Amelia. Mm -hmm. And then Amelia has a number of children, but notably among them, Macrina the younger, mm -hmm. Peter, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil of Caesarea, as well as Naucratius. You can sort of see when they started running out of names, perhaps. <laughs> then that's one family. And then on the other side, we have Gregory of Nazianzus' family. Now, we don't, can't go quite as far back, mm -hmm. but we can speak about his mother, Nona, mm -hmm. and her husband, Gregory the Elder, and then their children, uh, Caesarius, uh, Gregory's brother, mm -hmm. then Gorgonia, mm -hmm. the daughter, and Gregory of Nazianzus, the brother. So we have really just two families, a mm. lot of people, but two families. Mm. And as you say, they very much are families. And we're lucky in that we have a lot of biographical detail about both of them. Mm. So this kind of frees us a little bit. Mm. In most cases, when we're going this far back into history, we're kind of bound into what you might call prosopography. And this is a very sort of weird word. But what prosopography is, is the collection of disparate biographical details to try to construct a sort of timeline of mm. someone's life. In this case, we have not quite mountains, but certainly hills mm. of biographical detail that these people have recorded for us. Mm. That's really interesting. But as a bounding point, I'd say, when we see the people who recorded this, we're almost always talking about the men. Mm. There are no extant works by the Capitalistian women. Mm. Nothing, if anything was written by them, nothing survives. Mm. And I think with that, it's important to note our context. Mm. We're in fourth century, late Roman Empire. This is not the most friendly period to be a woman in. That I think is a pretty easy point to make. Mm. Uh, property ownership, individual rights are not something generally ascribed to women. And in this sense, the Cappadocian women are actually kind of remarkable. Mm -hmm. Since they are perhaps unique in the amount, not only the amount of detail, but the amount of personal detail that's mm -hmm. reported about them. So this isn't only a case where we find, you know, uh, for example, like a medieval confessor recording a female saint, mm -hmm. where they'll write perhaps, you know, she made some wonderful miracles and she was a virgin her whole life and then she died. <laughs> uh, you know, what a great life she lived, uh, which is perhaps very holy in a medieval monastic context, uh, but isn't what we might think of now as a fully featured life. Mm -hmm. So the Cappadocians are somewhat unique. 
they really record the full flower of lives of these people, not just as female holy people, mm -hmm. but as what we might think of as women in a sort of broad sense. Mm -hmm. um, they lived, they had kids, they got married. Who got married to who is something we can get into, since that gets a little tricky at a few points. But they're really fully developed people, and we're lucky to have those details about them. Hmm. So I'd put two further points on that. If you're interested in learning more about them in this sense, there's a great book hmm. by Carla Sundberg uh, called The Cappadocian Mothers. Okay. Uh, I Controversial. Might take, I might take issue with her title, but I certainly can't take issue with the content. It's a fantastic work. Hmm. She does a lot to actually recover some of the more marginal figures, especially like Theosebia, mm. uh, who is, again, a very strange figure in some ways. Is Theosebia the one that may or may not be married to... <laughs> to both Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus, but oh, might right. also be Gregory of Nyssa's sister? Wow, wow, yes, wow, wow. Yes, we, we can touch on that. There. It, there's a lot going on there. She's definitely only one of these things. Yeah. If she's two of them, she's definitely not married to them both. But we have, we have all this biographical detail, but even then there are a lot of question marks. And Carlos Sundberg does a great job of recovering that. Hmm. Uh, so I also have a book that's coming out in December with more Zivek. I'll put links in if there are links there to are, There are indeed links. Thank you great. so much. Uh, and that's called Gregory of Nazianzus' Soteriological Pneumatology. Hmm. I know, it just rolls right off the tongue. Yeah. So that book is very much about what we might call theosis and deification. Hmm. And I think this is an interesting idea to take into a discussion about the Cappadocian women. Hmm. Because as we have so much detail about their lives, hmm. when I say we can speak about them as fully featured people, I mean we can actually speak about them as fellow travelers on hmm. the path towards salvation. Hmm. And that's something we can't really do with a lot of female mystics, hmm. uh, especially today. Hmm. Their lives are perhaps not as accessible to us as hmm. their confessors might have liked. Hmm. Uh, it's a little hard to emulate that if you also want to live in the world. Yeah. Uh, whereas on the other hand, most of the Cappadocian women firmly lived in the world. Yeah. So as we said, Macrina the Elder was uh, catechized and studied under Gregory Thaumaturgus, mm -hmm. uh, but got married and had kids. And thankfully, since her kids went on to do some fascinating mm -hmm. work. So Basil the Elder and uh, Amelia mm -hmm. then had this very large family. And I think it's worth going through them in turn, because while we don't know a ton about that period of the Basilian family, we can speak a lot about the children. And I think it's worth starting with Theosebia. Hmm. The Theosebia is a little tricky, because as you say, we're not quite sure who she was. Hmm. She appears in Gregory's letters, Gregory of Nazianzus's letters, hmm. where he uh, gives another panegyric for her to Gregory of Nyssa. He expresses great regret over her passing, describes her as a true companion of a priest, for example. And this also um, is related somewhat to the fact that... so. Gregory of Nyssa is never a priest, right? Gregory of Nyssa is a priest. He's a he bishop. A he, he's bishop of Nyssa. But doesn't he get married? Does he become a priest? Ah, ah, does he get married? You can get married. You can get married. Well, oh, that's true. Yes. But Th why did I think that Gregory of Nyssa was... Didn't, didn't he do most of his life as an orator in the secular realm? And then... That's absolutely right. He okay. had what we might describe as a real career. Yeah. I don't want to be unfair to the his church. compatriots <laughs> in here. Uh, yeah. Well, is, is, it a, is it a job or is it a calling? Mm -hmm. uh, the joke I always heard was that if it's a job, you wear a suit. If it's a calling, you wear a gown. Uh, <laughs> so that's a tricky one. So I was say, if you're a scholar, does that make it a calling? or a... Well, you wear a suit under a gown. Okay, so, so it's, it's both. We're really splitting the difference there, <laughs> trying to have it both ways. But you're right, Gregory of Nyssa actually did have a really rich career as a rhetor or orator yeah. uh, before he went into um, mm. church service. Mm. Uh, but he did, he ended up as a bishop. He actually unsuccessfully, I might add, uh, was responsible for mediating a number of church disputes after the Council of Constantinople. Half is the best of us. It, so it goes. <laughs> uh, but he, he really, yes, he, he was a bishop, um, so he was ordained as a, as a priest. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned this idea about him being married, because this is an important connection to Theosebia. Mm. In trying to figure out who she is, mm -hmm. we can look at, I think, three interesting periods of scholarship. Okay. Really early on, this is um, early 20th century, there are a lot of people who are convinced that she may actually be Gregory of Nazianzus' wife. Okay. Not so sure about that one. Okay. There's a good evidence, I think, that Gregory of Nazianzus was a virgin his entire life. Mm -hmm. um, in his poem, In Praise of Virginity, I think he makes that pretty clear. Mm -hmm. So then there's a later period that thinks she might be Gregory of Nyssa's wife. Because, as you say, we know Gregory of Nyssa wasn't a virgin. Yes. This is a, perhaps a conversation you didn't expect to be having right now. Well, but he literally writes... He, uh, exactly. He writes, a, he writes this entire thing where he's like, oh, but only if I should have, because it's a higher calling to be a monk. And, That's uh, right. And he praises 
Macrina or Macrina. He does, right? He, he does. He, pra- he praises her for her virginity. Yeah. And that's a very common theme in, in some of this literature. Yeah. So there's an interesting dichotomy there. He may have been married. That would explain mm-hmm. a few things, mm-hmm. uh, although he doesn't have to have been married, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Augustine provides an interesting counterpoint there. Mm-hmm. So perhaps she was his wife, perhaps not. The more likely conclusion, I think, is that she's Gregory of Nyssa's sister. Okay. And that doesn't exclude her having been Gregory of Nazianzus' wife, of course, mm-hmm. but I think we can eliminate that if he spent his entire life as a virgin. Gregory of Nyssa, it seems unlikely if there, there may merely have been two Theosebias, of course. Yeah. It was a very popular name. So there kind of may like Gregory. Like Gregory. There's, there's, a, like there's a lot of Gregories. There's a lot of Gregories, there's a lot of um, Eusebiuses, there's a lot of Theosebias. Hmm. So Theosebia may be two people. There may be a Theosebia who was Gregory of Nyssa's wife, and there may be a Theosebia who was simply his sister. Hmm. In any case, I think we can focus on the one who's probably his sister in saying that she, again, was uh, much like Macrina, but in a somewhat more diffuse way, another sort of female mystic. Hmm. Uh, that Theosebia seems to have been Gregory of Nyssa's companion. Hmm. And companion's an interesting term here. Uh, we find companion showing up a lot in the literature to describe someone who is almost like... Um, a traveling partner, a writing partner. Hmm. Uh, there's actually a canon in the Council of Nicaea that forbids women from being these sorts of companions for male priests and bishops uh, unless they're above reproach. And it gives hmm. a list of basically it says mothers, sisters, aunts, that sort of thing. <laughs> Wouldn't that comprise most women? Uh, yeah, but I, th- I, I suspect. Oh, you mean to, to, I think, to the, to I the think man. Their aunts. Oh, I think if it was any aunts, <laughs> that would be a huge gaping <laughs> hole in the uh, literature that you just drive a train through that. <laughs> So no, uh, there, this is a case where uh, she's probably his sister and she's probably his companion in this way mm. uh, and guided him in a lot mm. of what he did. So she's a somewhat marginal figure in that way, uh, but again, someone who was deeply involved in his um, religious and indeed religious political career. Mm-hmm. So I think we can move from there to a figure like, say, Macrina, mm. because Macrina is really the big one. Yeah. Macrino, of course, is noted for having started a community for mm-hmm. female ascetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could question whether or not she was the leader of that community, mm-hmm. of course, because there is an open question over this, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not Peter was actually part of the same community and whether this was a community for both men and for women. Mm-hmm. There's some interesting questions there, I think. But the records clearly indicates that she was a significant figure mm-hmm. and a teacher to both Gregory of Nyssa and Basil of Caesarea. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, something else that seems to be a theme in this particular family lineage, too, is um, early deaths of fathers, right? So right. Um, Macrina the Elder's husband, uh, is he dies in the Diocletian persecution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Macrina's father dies. Um, I, it doesn't seem like she's terribly young, but at, at a young enough phase that she is described as kind of pulling up her bootstraps and helping her mom and running the household and educating the other kids. That's absolutely right. Uh, so her husband, her betrothed, passes yeah. away. Yes. And she sort of reels at this, at the idea that she might then, you know, marry again or go into a marriage and instead sort of sets herself up as this figure who really preserves the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're referring, of course, to the lines from The Life of Macrina that Gregory mm-hmm. Nyssa wrote, uh, where she's described in rather glowing terms. Yes. I think. It's now, a bit hagiographic. It, it, is, it is very much. Although I would say that Unlike later yeah. um, lives of female saints, uh, this it, it shows a life. It, it, it shows a life rather fully lived mm. uh, in that regard. Although rather curiously, the first half is concerned with the history of her family, and about a quarter of the remainder is about her having since died, and then yes. her accounting of some of her miracles. Yes. So we perhaps don't have as much of her, you know, yeah. life lived in there as we might like. But nevertheless, it gives a fascinating picture of someone who was uh, a church leader in their own right. Now, I think that's really interesting. I think there's some interesting features to that. But what really excites me uh-huh. is actually the other family. Mm. I know. And this is the one I know the least about, so... Ah. Well, I'm... And again, there's actually the least one is able to find out in a lot mm. of ways. Uh, since we don't have a similar um, life of yeah. for any of these women. Now, this is Gregory of Nazianzus' family. Mm. Now, I, I love these guys because actually neither of his, his sister nor his mother were what we might call religious figures. Mm. Uh, whereas, quite wonderfully, Macrina went on to set up her own order of female mm. spiritualists, or religious. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen with, happen with Gregory of Nazianzus' family. Mm. Uh, his mother is, very, it seems, very much head of the household in her yeah. own way. <laughs> uh, and his sister, likewise. 
So that's really quite exciting, actually, uh, because we aren't looking at a, a sort of traditional story of historical Christian mm. mystics or saints, mm. where we often find that it says, oh, great, oh, she's a virgin her entire life, and then she died. Did yeah. some miracles after she died, maybe did a miracle or two before she died. Yeah. I think that's sort of a tough act to follow for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and I want to make a, I'll make a further point about this for some of the Cappadocian men later. What we find with Gregory of Nazianzus' family are two really incredibly strong women. First, his mother, uh, Nona. She's described as a new Sarah in, in glowing terms many times. She's credited with having converted his father to Christianity. And that's actually, there's rather a bold claim here. Yeah. Since his father was a, me a member of what was called the Hypsisterians, oh. uh, they were a high, no, they're great, great name. <laughs> They were a hybrid religious sect, oh. uh, a little bit Jewish, a little bit pagan. Okay. Uh, they sort of observed the Sabbath, but didn't do circumcision. They mm -hmm. seem to have read from the Septuagint and worshipped a single monotheistic god called uh, Hypsistos, the highest one. Mm -hmm. Which is really quite exciting, actually. Yeah. Uh, but she converted him away from that. And this was a good rather woman. old, oh, it was good, well done for her, mm -hmm. I suppose, uh, a rather old noble family mm -hmm. uh, that then she brought into the Christian fold. Mm -hmm. And... In doing this, there's an assertion of control over the household that I think is really interesting, actually. Uh, we'll often see stories, uh, for example, with Macrina the Elder, someone who was catechized and sort of mm. guided the family. Th this, with Nona, this is someone sort of seizing the reins of power in the family. Kind of the queen. Yeah, this is how this is going. This is gonna, how this is going to go. Yeah. Uh, Gregory the Elder, for his many positive qualities, uh, is often and repeatedly described as a very simple man, uh, <laughs> simple and childlike um, oh. by his own son. Uh, and this is a case where we don't have any young deaths of husbands. Okay. Um, Gregory <laughs> the Elder lived for an extremely long time. He seems to have lived well into his 70s or 80s, huh. uh, which is rather impressive yeah. for the fourth century, uh, and spent that whole time kind of being a bugbear to his mm. son, unfortunately. But the mother, uh, Nona, uh, really was this sort of pillar in the family. Mm. Uh, she was the Christianizing force in it. Mm. Uh, she's said to have dedicated her son to uh, Christ before mm. his birth. Uh, and in that, there's something really exciting, actually. Mm. And then we have his sister, mm. Gorgonia. Gorgonia is a somewhat more marginal figure. Uh, we can kind of see the parallels with someone like Macrina here, uh, in that Gorgonia is clearly deeply spiritual and deeply religious. Mm. Uh, she's the person that Gregory de Nazianzus describes as having been the only one who received the seal of baptism uh, before the event itself. Wow. Which is really a, a very bold claim. Huh. So she, however, was married uh -huh. uh, and had children. Mm -hmm. However, what it says of her is that she and her husband, after they had their children, then lived their lives as neither man nor woman in Christ. Hmm. Uh, sort of a kind of realized eschatology in the household. Huh. Uh, so they basically both lived as no longer virgins, obviously, but with that sort of insight uh, mm. and living as Christians without reference to gender. Mm. And that's, that's, again, a really exciting idea and not something we see replicated in many other places. Mm. Uh, and I think that brings us to an interesting point about gender generally when we're having these conversations. Uh, we find often that gender seems a definitive term here. Mm. When we speak of holy women and holy men, mm. of church fathers and church mothers, we actually, in the writings, often find them seemingly defined in terms of their gender. Mm. I think it's important to note that that actually is less the case than we might often think. Mm. Uh, I, I'm happy to own this and say a lot of this is down to a very clear bias. Mm. A lot of the early scholarship especially was done by men. Mm. I'm happy to say now, of course, that church history, and especially patristics, is um, a remarkably diverse field for theology. Mm. Uh, some of our top scholars are all women, mm. uh, which is fascinating in its own way, that this is where we find it. Mm. But when we actually look closely at the text, we can find that this idea we see in Gorgonia is actually far more seemingly widespread than we might mm. suspect. Although there's always reference to sexuality and to virginity, really all these figures are trying to move away from the concept. Mm. Because when we're talking, when we were talking about a, a looking towards salvation in the period, we're talking about something that doesn't have, it's ungendered. Mm. Uh, it's a future in which there is neither male nor female in Christ. Mm. So I think that's rather exciting, actually. Hmm. Because when we start abstracting these ideas away, and especially when we go back to Macrina, we yeah. don't have to just think of her as a holy woman. Hmm. We can think of her as a holy person, a holy person or a church father, even, hmm. in that way. <laughs> Someone who did work that was foundational for yeah. the sort of DNA of the church. Hmm. And again, we can see this in a lot of the male writers. Hmm. You know, no one has ever really said, oh yeah, all these guys are defined by their gender. 
you know, clearly yeah. these, these are men writing texts for men. It might be strictly true in some cases, mm-hmm. but no one seems to make that point. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, this point is made about the women. So what I'm saying is actually we can find that there's a sort of abstraction away, from, away from gender in all of them. Mm-hmm. So what seems to be a marginal idea in Gorgonia actually might be something rather bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, something not quite explosive, but certainly rather, I think, um, inspirational for the imagination. Mm-hmm. This idea that in a very, what seems like a very modern way, but is in fact a very old idea, uh, we're finding the boundaries of culture, mm-hmm. the culture they found themselves in, being radically transcended by mm-hmm. Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most exciting things we find at the period. Yeah. Uh, as we move on through time, the sad truth is that Christianity becomes a little more caught up in its culture. Mm-hmm. But in this sort of moment, uh, we can see still spaces where it's radically transcended. Yeah. So I think that's rather exciting. So Nona, in that respect, I think gives us some really interesting ways, uh, Nona and Gorgonia give us some really interesting ways about reconceiving of the relationships we find in both families. Mm. And I think taking that as a jumping off point, we can talk a little bit about the spirit, maybe. Mm, yeah. So uh, I and others have, have talked a lot about uh, theosis mm. and deification mm-hmm. in the Church Fathers, and especially in the Cappadocian Fathers. And give us a, a brief, what's your briefest summary of theosis? It's salvation. It's salvation. It's salvation. Uh, we find parallel terms mm. used in later Western thinkers when we talk mm. about glorification or sanctification. Mm. We actually mean something very much like deification. Mm. Uh, the term gets, I think, thought of as rather hip sometimes, yeah. so people <laughs> will try to use it to mean things it doesn't mean. Mm. Literally, uh, it's becoming like God. Mm. One of the earliest terms we find used for deification is theopoesis, so being made God. Mm. So it sounds really radical. Uh, and it is a radical concept. We shouldn't take away from it any content. Nevertheless, it bears in itself a lot of their understanding of what it meant to be saved mm-hmm. as a Christian. Because in that, we have the idea of becoming Christ-like mm-hmm. through Christ-likeness becoming like God. They say that, um, uh, Greg of Nazianzus writes that uh, we should um, walk with Christ in all ways. And we should be mm-hmm. born with Christ. We should be baptized with Christ. Mm-hmm. We should suffer with Christ. We should die with Christ and be glorified with Christ. Mm. So there's this really deep idea of uh, mimicking Christ's mm. life uh, and becoming Christ-like in that mm. sense. So that's what we're finding in the- theosis. So if we dive more deeply into that, we find at the start of it, the spirit. Mm. One of the reasons people are very excited about the Cappadocians is because of their rich pneumatology. It's why mm. I'm very excited about mm. them. It's why I wrote a book on it. <laughs> there is this sense that they see the spirit first. That there's an encounter with a divine indwelling of the spirit in them, mm-hmm. which they respond to and, as, and start moving towards salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has its seal in baptism, mm-hmm. but often precedes that. Uh, mm-hmm. They see the spirit as having been active in the world before the coming of Christ, very active in individuals before the coming of Christ, and especially active now. Uh, they'll go so far as to say that the spirit indwells us in the same way the spirit indwelled Christ, mm. which is a really radical sort of claim. Yeah. And again, a radical claim towards Christ-likeness. Mm. Now I bring this up because when we talk about the Cappadocian women, we can't alienate them from this concept. Mm. As I've said before, they're people going through the process of salvation, trying to find uh, meaning and content mm. in life. And I think that's really exciting because they clearly find it in different ways. Yeah. Both Macrina and Gorgonia, despite the fact they followed very different paths in life, mm. are described in no less glowing terms as mm. having been holy or saint-like. Mm. There's a little confusion there, of course, because when we speak of holy and saints, we're um, entering into a very English linguistic problem. Yes. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Yeah. They, they, they are very different people, but they are described in very similar terms. Uh, and I think that's something that's actually really exciting in the Cappadocians. Mm. We can say that they were far more woman-positive in their context. We can mm. say that there were ideas in there that transcended culture. But this is one we can find really familiar no matter when or where we are, which is the idea of people trying to live in a Christian way and trying to navigate the tribulations of life mm. in a way that's coherent with their Christianity. Mm. And we find two successful accounts of that in Cappadocian women who lived very different lives. Mm. I think that's a really interesting idea. Absolutely. Well, and I think I think you're drawing on something that is perhaps the most inspiring thing about them, which is that we see this radical holiness or this this becoming like Christ, 
But this doesn't mean a becoming an identical kind of clone of something we might imagine in our minds of a perfect woman, right? It, for for Macrina, it means starting this this order and dedicating her life to the poor. And for Gorgonia, it's it's a married life and and drawing. It, it, it's this these becoming like Christ in the way that shines out in, in difference. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the, the idea of capturing difference in what mm. can often seem like a rather totalizing uh, mm. theology is really important for the Cappadocians. Mm. Uh, Gregory quotes that lovely line, there, there are many, how, uh, many rooms in God's mansion. Hmm. Uh, there are many paths up the mountain is another way we hear this described. And I think that's a really, he really means it. Yeah. <laughs> he really means it. In his later life, he'll write these wonderful poems that are these sort of um, imagined dialogues hmm. uh, where sort of concepts will have debates with each other. Uh, and one of them in praise of virginity has virginity arguing with the married life, uh, which is a rather interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, and another, for example, has the uh, monastic life arguing with the worldly life. And yeah. these both make these cases before a judge who then yeah. decides between them. And the decision is usually, well, these are both good. Hmm. These are both good things. There's merit to both of these. Yeah. And I think it's worth honing in on a point he makes in, uh, in Praise of Virginity, which is that he says that uh, you know, virginity is often better. And this is an idea we expect to find in him. Mm. Uh, you know, this is something we often, we often see virginity elevated above the married life in these figures. Uh, however, he says, there is nevertheless great holiness to be found in the married life. Mm. And he makes the point about how, you know, we, we don't have more saints without the married life. Mm. Um, you know, every parent is potentially the parent of a truly holy person. Well, and also, I mean, this is so very obviously represented in these two families. Absolutely who, right. He's who are, very much speaking from his experience. Yeah, who are both kind of led and um, shaped by holy women. That's exactly right. And I think he makes a really bold claim right towards the end, which is sort of a, kind of a brave one. It seems a lot less brave when we look backwards towards uh -huh. it, but it's rather brave uh, in its context. He says there are even cases where married people are more holy. Hmm. Than those who adhere to virginity. That's uh, which be shocking for that time. It's a lot. It's a big thing to say for a mm -hmm. figure who you know spends a lot of his time arguing for this very straight line kind of mm -hmm. monastic life. So that's really interesting. He he does, I will say, sort of um, bracket it by saying, you know, we also see snow in springtime and flowers in winter. <laughs> uh, but he, he says, it, it, you know, it, it might be rare, but it still happens. Mm -hmm. uh, so he is clearly shaped by the experience of experiences of the women around him. Mm. Uh, they guided him towards what we might consider to be now quite a hardline view, but at the time was actually quite expansive, yeah. uh, quite open to these sort of new ideas and new forms of representation. Mm. And I think that's rather, uh, that's rather an exciting concept to find so far in our distant past. Yeah. This is a, a funny thing to relate it to, but it reminds me of that scene in um, The Horse and His Boy uh, by Lewis where um, Shasta is asking Aslan, like, why didn't this happen or whatever about, um, is it, I can't remember the girl's name. Is it Jarvis or something like that? Anyway, um, and he's like, I can only tell you your story. And there's kind of this picture of, of that taking place in the lives of these different people, which is that they each have their own story, their own life in which they are called to holiness. And all of them are called, called to holiness. It's, it's not like... Macrina had a holy life and Gorgonia didn't or Macrina the elder didn't or because she wasn't a nun or something. Mm -hmm. They're all um, called and stirred by the spirit to become like Christ in their own distinct calling. That's exactly right. Uh, so when there's this encouragement to follow in the way of Christ, uh, this is a very good thing. It's a very holy thing. Nevertheless, by placing the emphasis on the spirit, they're very much placing the emphasis on a com combination of an individual and collective experience. Mm. Uh, in the first instance, it's an individual experience. It's an individual indwelling of a common spirit. Mm. And in the second, it's a life that's shared within the church. And the church in this sense becomes a, if you'll pardon me, it's a broad church. <laughs> it's one that contains both Macrina and Nona and Gorgonia. Yeah. And indeed, Theosebia and Amelia, who had very different lives, who had very different lived experiences, but were nonetheless considered to be holy people, or holy women in this case. Uh, and I, th I think that's a really important concept to hold on to. Uh, it's one that I think is often too easily lost yeah. when we set these narrow channels for holiness. And unfortunately, as is often the case in these texts, we see too often, I think, these sort of narrow channels for holiness set mm. out. Um, mm. This is especially true, um, you know, very early on, we see this idea that, you know, well, there's no other way to holiness, but, you know, strict adherence to virginity. And, you know, if you, if you cleave away from that suddenly, um, yeah. you know, you're basically lost. 
Uh, and that could be a bit disheartening to find yeah. in, in the uh, early church. Uh, whereas on the other hand, at this point, we see, as I said, a, a lot of curiosity and new ways of thinking about living in the world. Absolutely. And I feel like, so I think the things that I would take in this conversation uh, and thinking about these women is that one, they show us that the road to holiness, the road to theosis, um, is not one which brings us towards monotonous sameness, but towards towards kind of a beautiful difference in which things become more like what they are. Uh, but then also, they all show us that we are all called to holiness. Like, that you that they saw this not as something that was just for one person, but that in each of their own lives within the church, they're called to pursue that in, in whatever life they have been given and have chosen. I think that's right. I think it's rather exciting that in Gregory of Nazianzus, a guy who, you know, he reports having been visited by a vision of virginity in his dream. He's pretty committed to this concept. <laughs> for, the, for him to, especially in his later life, be able to reflect back... Now, I'll put a comment on this afterwards. To be able to reflect back and actually offer us this sort of expansive view mm. and to see how he has been shaped by the holy women in his life, mm. who, again, were not the sort of formal teachers that Macrina, like yeah. Macrina was, who were, again, just women living their, you know, mothers, fullest sisters, possible lives, yeah. mothers yeah. and sisters. We, we see something really exciting happening, actually, and it, it, it's, it's evidence of this sort of broad range of possibilities mm-hmm. and this idea of that we can have difference in holiness mm-hmm. um, with equality in holiness as well. Mm-hmm. A comment on this, actually, is that Gregory of Nazianzus, at the same time he was writing these poems, was also writing lengthy works against the wearing of makeup and jewelry. <laughs> so we can... <laughs> I don't want to elevate him too much <laughs> in this respect. He just really uh, took that one verse and just... Went with it. Yeah, oh, he really did. Um, my... <laughs> well, why is the reason for that? Was there like a cultural... Did, did they wear makeup and jewelry in the same way that we did? Was he just being a bit boring? Was was it really important? Like, what he do you also think? was a cranky old man. I don't, I don't want to overstate that. Um, <laughs> you know, he... Uh, or understate that, rather. He, he's a fascinating figure. Um, as for the why of that, I, I'd make two points. Um, I'd point in the first case to my colleague um, at Yale, Gabriel Thomas, mm. uh, who's written some fantastic stuff on this. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to encourage her to publish the translations of these mm. poems that she has, since they're very good. And mm. she said some very interesting things about them. So I'll, nevertheless, I'll make an effort on this part. Gregory's view on jewelry and makeup is very much shaped by image theology. And this is mm. my colleague, uh, Dr. Thomas's specialist area. Mm. The idea is that the image of Christ should be unadorned. Hmm. It is its own glory. Hmm. That to adorn the image of, this is to say, when I say image of Christ, I mean the individual. Hmm. Uh, that to adorn the image of Christ in any way is to detract hmm. from the set, you know, its most purest and most important feature, uh, which huh. is that it is beautiful because it is Christ-like. Huh. It is not beautiful because it is adorned. Huh. So that's why he goes so hard against it. Which. In that logic, makes a lot of sense. It, it is. It is. It's a very, very beautiful logic. Yeah. Um, it is. So there is something in that I think that's very that perhaps resonates with us in a lot of ways, mm. especially when we live in a society that is pushes so hard against the idea that we can be unadorned. Mm. Nevertheless, it is worth noting that he makes it in the crankiest way possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gabriel does some amazing work, sort of recovering this idea, but huh. Gregor, Gregory. I, I think is, is, is very very much finding himself in a world where he sees this happening more often. Um, and then again, the wearing of makeup and jewelry, not quite comparable to today, where it's sort of totalizing. It's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Nevertheless, especially um, in wealthier families, mm. um, like, it's really worth noting, um, these two Cappadocian families were uh, country nobility. Yeah. Um, these, were, these were wealthy families. So in their sort of circles, uh, in these sort of areas, uh, absolutely, you huh. absolutely would have seen um, a fair whack of jewelry and huh. uh, quite a lot of women going around in makeup and potentially huh. men as well. Huh. So it, th- again, this is, a, this is a really broad... Which is just another way in which you see that this was Christianity was experienced as being very radically different from the culture it was around. Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's very much a sense here that Christianity is apart from the culture it finds mm. itself in, even as it seems to be rolling on to shape that culture. Mm. Uh, this is after Constantine, of mm. course. Yeah. So Christianity is legal at this yeah. point. It's not until mm, much later that Christianity actually becomes the religion of empire. Mm. So it's, it's not long until that. This is you know, 381 we're talking yeah. about at this point. So that's actually, it's quite strange that it still finds itself radically at odd with the culture around it, yeah. uh, which is perhaps a, a familiar call to some people. Indeed. But nevertheless, uh, we find these sort of, one. I think 
rather wonderful and beautiful articulations of ways that we can be different, not just from culture, but from each other, hmm. uh, in ways that still allow us to pursue holiness in something that feels honest to us. That is a wonderful thought to close this episode on. Uh, before I end this episode, where would you um, direct people to read more about? I know you said this in the middle, but just remind us at the end. What, what books, what resources would you direct people towards if they're I, interested in this? Of topic? course. I will cite two resources. Um, this is the Anti-Nicene Fathers uh-huh. and the Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers. Mm-hmm. So that's ANF and NPNF. Okay. So these are older translations mm-hmm. of the Church Fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're very widely available online. Mm-hmm. If you do a Google search for Anti-Nicene Fathers, mm-hmm. A-N-T-E, mm-hmm. or NPNF, Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, you will find a variety of free websites that host these translations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those, you can find these massive lists of different, you know, different fathers, different perspectives from different times, uh, spanning really the whole of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Uh, so those, I think, are a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're widely available. They're free, which I think is the best part about them. Uh, as you go deeper into it, of course, mm-hmm. you're going to have to sort of cast your eyes further afield. There are more specialist translations out there, uh, yeah. especially the Fathers of the Church translations, mm-hmm. uh, which are not critical editions. They're very accessible. I think uh, I might have one of those. And they usually have little introductions that are really that's right. helpful and easy to read. And th- those, are, those are a great series as well, FOTC uh, by Catholic University Press, mm-hmm. Catholic University of America Press. And then alongside that, if you're interested in a more Eastern perspective as well, not that these other two don't cover that, Mm. there's a great little series called Popular Patristics. Mm. They're these great little books, and they are rather little books. Uh They tend to cover works that haven't been translated elsewhere, rather like FOTC. Mm. But they're really short volumes. They have great introductions and great commentary. Uh, They're relatively inexpensive, and you can often actually find them in um, sort of mainstream bookstores. Grand. And once more, what is the title of your new book? Gregory of Nazianz's Soteriological Pneumatology. Which is really to say how the Spirit leads us into the image of Christ. That's right. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Oliver. Thank you for having me, Joy. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you'll join me next week. Bye.